0: Welcome back to another episode of the Lost Crimes Library podcast. I'm Nisa and happy Black History Month. We will be continuing our Black History Month series where I highlight cold cases from the civil rights era. These cases are decades and decades old and they are often left unsolved and sadly the victims and their legacies end up forgotten. One of these victims who has unfortunately been forgotten is Maddie Green and that is the case that I'll be covering for today's episode. So let's get started. As Maddie Green, her husband, and their six children slept in their home in Ringgold, Georgia, a dynamite explosion erupted beneath their home. The explosion killed Maddie, but her husband and her children survived. The first investigation into Maddie Green's death suggested racial motives behind her death. In 2009, as part of the DOJ's cold case initiative, the FBI opened an investigation into the circumstances of Maddie Green's death. But does the new investigation really shed any light on what really happened to Maddie Green and get us any closer to naming her killer? This is the story of the civil rights cold case of Maddie Green. 32-year-old Maddie Green lived in a small house with her husband and children in northwest Georgia in their hometown of Ringgold. Maddie and her husband Jethro both worked several jobs to provide for their large family. There was talk that the two had plans to expand their small house to accommodate for their growing family, so they took up extra work to fund the project. During World War II, Jethro served as a construction foreman in the army in the India-Burma campaign, After the war, he worked as an auto mechanic and also cleaned a drugstore, while Maddie worked as a housekeeper and a homemaker. Overall, the Greens were well-liked and respected in their hometown of Ringgold, which is a city in Catoosa County, Georgia. The Green family's known popularity and respect made what happens next even more confusing and shocking. In the early morning hours of May 19, 1960, as Maddie and her family slept soundly, an explosion desolated their small home. The laundry that Maddie had been doing the day before flew up and landed on nearby trees and wires. Maddie's husband Jethro and their 17-month-old son were injured, but Jethro and the baby, as well as their other children, survived the explosion. However, tragically, falling debris crushed and killed Maddie Green. Maddie died in an ambulance on her way to the hospital because so many people in Ringgold loved and respected Maddie Green and her family, they supported the family in a big way after Maddie's death. Hundreds attended Maddie's funeral in a small black church. There were so many people attending that some people had to even stand outside. And Georgia's then governor, Ernest Vandiver, offered a $500 reward for information pertaining to Maddie's murder. The investigation into Maddie Green's death began immediately. It was investigated by the Catoosa County Sheriff's Office and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, also known as the GBI. The FBI was also involved in the initial investigation. However, their role was mainly to assist the local investigations. Basically, they weren't running the investigation, but were kind of just there for backup if the other investigative agencies needed it. Sadly, as is often for such old cases, there is very very limited information available from the initial investigations. The Katusa County Sheriff's Office and the GBI failed to retain any records pertaining to the investigations. To add, any forensic evidence that was collected at the crime scene was destroyed in a flood of the Katusa County Courthouse sometime in 1970. And to make things worse, the original FBI file was destroyed later, in 2005. However, we do have a redacted copy of the file to work from, which was provided by the Southern Poverty Law Center, in 2003. What we know from the available files is that the bomb was placed underneath the bedroom of Jethro and Maddie Green. Newspapers from 1960 that covered the bombing said that investigators did not publicly establish a motive for Maddie's murder. Although the Katusa County Sheriff was quoted suggesting theories regarding the motive, the sheriff suggested that the motive for the murder could have been race-related or even a personal grudge against the Green family. Because the available copy of the FBI case file is redacted, at some points I will be referring to any redacted names as X. According to the file, there were suspicions that someone planted the bomb at Maddie's residence. A memo in the file states, quote, a polygraph examination of X was inconclusive, and X exhibited nervousness and deception when asked whether or not X was responsible for redacted, end quote. During the first investigations, at least one person was identified who claimed to have had an extramarital affair with Maddie Green, and according to the case file, there was speculation that both X and Maddie Green had extramarital affairs. In the file, it is noted, quote, It seemed almost impossible after viewing the scene that X suffered as little injury as X did when X, who was redacted, the redacted, which appeared to be a three-fourth size, suffered crashing injuries by having the ceiling and rafters fall on her. End quote. Now this can be a little confusing because key information has been redacted from the file. But after reading through the file multiple times, I think the initial investigators were speculating that Matt. Maddie's husband, Jethro, was also having an affair. I also think the investigators found him suspicious because he was not as badly injured as Maddie or his other family members. I want to reiterate that there is no way to be certain that the redacted name mentioned in the file is Maddie's husband. However, I don't know who else the police could be referring to here since they believe the person who planted the bomb was also injured in the attack. It seems unlikely her young children would plant the bomb, so it kind of only leaves her husband, as there was no other known adult on the property property at the time. I found an article about this case published by a Courthouse News Service and written by Daniel Jackson who writes quote With few leads the FBI looked at Jethro Green as the possible murderer of his wife but ruled him out end quote So, this makes me think it is possible that X is referring to Jethro Green, but without being able to find a second article corroborating this information, and the fact that there isn't much to work with in these files, there's no way to know for certain who investigators are talking about here. Ultimately, despite the investigators' suspicions of X, they were unable to establish that X actually planted the bomb. For a while, there was speculation that the bombing of Maddie's home could have been a mistake. Investigators thought that it could be possible that due to recent Klan activity in the area, the bomb may have actually been intended for a neighbor. They believed this because Maddie's neighbor had been in an altercation with several white men before the bombing. In a separate FBI intelligence report, it is stated that a leader of the Klan in Chattanooga, Tennessee was heard in a meeting in Atlanta three days after the bombing, talking about Maddie's murder. The intelligence report I am referring to is about the investigation into the Dixie Klan from August 1960. The weekend after Maddie's death, a man named Jack William Brown, traveled to his scheduled Klan meeting with his friends in Atlanta. According to the report, while the FBI office in Atlanta was investigating the bombing, the FBI office operating in Knoxville, Tennessee, was keeping an eye on Brown because he took the Dixie Klan outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. A 1967 report on the Klan by the House Committee on Un-American Activities noted the larger Klan organization kicked out Brown's group in 1957. Reportedly, the Klan leader Eldon Edwards said he could not control Brown's group's propensity towards violence. This same report also said, quote, Committee investigation disclosed that in its earlier years, the Dixie Klan was repeatedly involved in bombings and other acts of violence. End quote. Over the years, the FBI collected tens of thousands of pages on the Dixie Klan, which had cells in Georgia, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Anniston, Alabama. Their investigation into the Klan revealed that the members met at the Henry Grady Hotel in Atlanta the weekend after the bombing to coordinate a joint operation. Reportedly, the night before the meeting, Saturday, May 21, 1960, Jack William Brown was one of the Klan members that met in the hotel to drink and talk. And there at the hotel was a confidential informant, taking note of everything that was discussed. As Brown spoke with W.A. Somerset, a member of the Klan group in Florida, the Maddie Green bombing, which had been covered by many newspapers at the time, came up in conversation. According to the informant, Brown said that the bombing was, quote-unquote, a good job. Brown also said there was enough dynamite under the house to, quote, blow them both to kingdom come. According to the FBI's intelligence report, Brown was very boastful about the bombing. Until this point, the newspapers had not yet declared that the bombing was racially motivated, although we know that there were suspicions. And during the conversation, W.A. Somerset pointed this fact out to Brown.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
0: But in the same conversation, Brown argued that, quote, authorities now know that this Negro was a stooge for Martin Luther King and the NAACP, end quote. At the May 22nd Klan meeting in Atlanta, in which Brown attended, the informant told the FBI that, quote, a discussion was held concerning the school situation, and all were in agreement. That more drastic steps must be taken to stop any further school integration. And it was further agreed that the best way to stop integration in schools is to knock off the leaders, be they white or colored. End quote. And according to the FBI case file on the Maddie Green bombing, one informant told the FBI on May 20th, 1960, that Maddie Green was quote, possibly a Ringgold organizer for the NAACP, end quote. However, we know that this has never been confirmed by investigators if the Greens were active and well-known members of the NAACP. It is important to note that the documents the NAACP donated to the Library of Congress from the Civil Rights era does not list documents relating to an NAACP chapter in Ringgold or in Catoosa County. But what we do know about Jethro Green's community involvement is that he was part of a religious singing group that played through the airwaves of a Chattanooga radio station. It's also well known how active the Klan was in Ringgold at that time, too. According to Maddie's sister-in-law, the Klan would parade through the streets of Ringgold with their hoods on during Friday and Saturday evenings. In July 1960, the FBI mentioned in the case file that the sheriff of Catoosa County investigated the rumors that the Green family was involved in the NAACP. The file states that the informant heard, quote, that Redacted Name and a group of Negro males were meeting regularly at each other's homes, and some people thought that perhaps a NAACP organization was being formed. Stewart advised that he learned that Redacted Name and others were members of a singing group that practiced at each other's homes. End quote. Ultimately, the authorities determined that the Green family was not known for civil rights activity and were not known to the white residents for having quote-unquote uppity behavior that would have gotten them in trouble with the Klan. By July 1960, authorities were unsuccessful at identifying any suspects in Maddie Green's murder, and they closed the case for the time being. Almost 50 years later, by April 2009, the FBI opened an investigation into the circumstances surrounding Maddie Green's murder due to the Department of Justice's cold case initiative. If you've tuned into the previous episodes from the last two weeks, you already know that thanks to the Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Crime Act of 2008, the DOJ was charged with reinvestigating cold cases from the civil rights era. As part of the investigation into Maddie Green's murder, in 2009, the FBI interviewed over 20 current and former citizens of Ringgold, Georgia, The FBI was attempting to nail down any potential suspects in the case. Those who were interviewed included Maddie's children, Maddie's relatives and neighbors, a local pastor, a Catoosa County Sheriff's captain, as well as that individual's family members, several physicians, Lester Waters and W.E. Waters, and anyone who claimed to have any knowledge about any potential suspects. Although the FBI conducted numerous interviews, they claimed the investigation produced few evidentiary leads. Two individuals named Lester Waters and W.E. Waters, who are now deceased, were rumored to have been involved in Maddie Green's murder. Just a heads up, the following portion of the FBI case file is heavily redacted, so buckle up. This should be fun trying to figure out. According to the redacted case file, redacted Maddie Green's redacted advised the FBI that she was told by then Whitefield County Sheriff J.D. Stewart that a man named Lester Waters had confessed to Maddie Green's murder, and that Waters' guilt about the murder had driven him crazy. It is also revealed that Stewart allegedly told Redacted that he and a deputy had transported Waters to the mental institution in Milledgeville, Georgia. Redacted, Maddie Green's Redacted, told the FBI that a number of years prior to the interview, while shopping in Ringgold, Redacted was approached by a white woman who said, quote, "'Sorry about what happened to Redacted. Redacted was involved and it drove him crazy.' we had to take him to Milledgeville, end quote. In response to this lead, after determining that Sheriff J.D. Stewart was deceased, the FBI conducted eight interviews with Lester and W.E. Waters' family. This is what came from the interviews. Someone close to Lester Waters told the FBI that Redacted Name was active in the KKK and that Redacted and Sheriff Stewart were very close The person who informed the FBI of this information denied any knowledge of Maddie Green's death or knowledge about Redacted receiving psychiatric treatment in Milledgeville. Another interview with a separate person revealed that Redacted and Lester Waters attended KKK meetings at Lester's house in Ringgold and that the meetings centered around, quote, hate of blacks and Jews, end quote. (sighs) According to the informant, Redacted was committed to the Central State Hospital in Milledgeville around sometime in 1966, and this was because his arteriosclerosis, quote, was causing him to go crazy, end quote. The informant also confirmed that Redacted was transported to Central State Hospital by two sheriff's deputies. Along with Redacted, W.E. Waters was admitted to Central State Hospital, but he died of an acute cardiac event days after being admitted. However, the FBI was never able to confirm whether W.E. Waters was in fact a patient at Central State Hospital. I'm sorry if any of this is confusing because of the many redactions. I feel like that confused math lady meme. But what we can gather from this 2009 investigation is that two individuals named Lester Waters and W.E. Waters were both active in the KKK and they were both close to the local sheriff, as confirmed by their relatives. However, everything else, like their alleged guilt or remorse, appears to be simply speculation and rumor. Finally, the redacted name, who is the same redacted person who attended Klan meetings at Lester's house and was later admitted into Central State Hospital in Milledgeville, agreed to take a polygraph test at the request of the FBI. He passed the polygraph test without any indication of deception. After all of these interviews, the FBI investigation concluded without any further leads. And just like that, Maddie Green's case turned cold. No suspects were ever named, and justice was never fulfilled. In 2012, the Department of Justice officially closed the case. The legal reasoning behind Maddie Green's case being officially closed is as such, quote, This matter does not constitute a prosecutable violation of federal criminal civil rights statutes. First, despite extensive efforts, no living subject has been identified. Second, even if a living subject could be identified, The statute of limitations has expired. Prior to 1994, federal criminal civil rights violations were not capital offenses, thereby subjecting them to a five-year statute of limitations. The memo goes on to say that although some of these civil rights statutes have since been amended and that the Civil Rights Division has used non-civil rights statutes to overcome the statute of limitations challenge in certain cases in the past, the facts of the present case do not lend themselves to prosecution under other such statutes. I will include a link to the DOJ's cold case closing memo in the description if you'd like to take a look. Maddie Green's story is, sadly, not uncommon for the era in which she lived. Unfortunately, her story is the story of so many other victims of racial strife in this country. Maddie Green and her family were targeted by someone. Someone sought to kill Maddie, her husband, and her six children. But the questions remain, who would target this woman? Was it the Klan? Or was it a scorned lover? Or was her family accidentally targeted. And of course, what was the motive behind the attack? Was it a racial motive, or was it a personal motive? As the years pass, along with the possible suspects, the answers to these questions may never be known. And sadly, another victim, Maddie Green, will be erased from history. But I hope that with this episode, I could in some way ensure her story lives on, and that people will know who she was, and will never forget her. The end of the episode has come. As always, thanks for taking time out of your busy life to watch or listen to another episode. If you're watching on YouTube right now, please do me a favor and hit the like button before you go. And consider tapping the subscribe button and the notification bell so you don't miss out on any new episodes. If you want to stay connected with the podcast, check out our social media. You can follow us on TikTok and Instagram at the Lost Crimes Library pod. And if you're listening right now on Apple or Spotify, please leave a rating and review. Okay, that's it for me today. See you soon in the next episode.